Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to The Amazing World of Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Our Summer of Summer Replacement Programs continues, and these are brought to you by the vote of uh, our Patreon voters for the Great Detectives, uh, patreon.greatdetectives.net. And we have another episode of the Johnson Wax Program, which I introduced extensively last week, so we're just going to get into it uh, this week. Original air date is September the 1st, 1942, and uh, let's go ahead and take a listen to the Johnson Wax Program. The Johnson Wax Program. The makers of Johnson's Wax, Johnson's self-polishing glow coat, and Johnson's car new present the brilliant conductor-composer of melody, Meredith Wilson, and MGM's noted young commentator star and teller of amazing tales, John Nesbitt. Gentlemen, this program, in the words of John Nesbitt and the music of Meredith Wilson, with songs by Connie Haynes and Bob Carroll, is sent to you by S.C. Johnson and Son, makers of Johnson's wax finishes for home and industry. And now here are Meredith Wilson and John Nesbitt. John Nesbitt landed himself in quite a serious mood this week and promised us an entirely different story than his usual tales of the passing parade. Any clues to this evening's story, John? By Harlow, the only thing I can say is that I was really frightened about using this subject, for it is probably the single most terrible story of modern history. That Meredith was in favor of using it anyway, the sponsor gave his permission... So after our musical program is underway, we'll try to give this story as best may be. And speaking of music, what have you whipped up for us tonight, Meredith? Well, Harlow, we just whipped up eight or nine arrangements for the America Sings group, some vocals for Connie and Bob, and we whipped up an orchestration for the Lost Music Department and finished off with the Sousa March. And, pardon me, just before whipping into that aforesaid march, we might note that this is the only one of all the Sousa Marches that ends quietly. And in it is portrayed the sound of waves rising and falling on a beach. Hence, it is called the Manhattan Beach March.
Time now for Meredith's idea that has become one of the radio hits of the year, the Department of Lost Music. Songs that, for unknown reasons, never had a chance. Meredith hunts out the music, and John traces the story. This one was found within 30 feet of where Meredith Wilson conducts his orchestra in the briefcase of Nat Leslie, our drummer. It seems that 15 years ago, Mr. Leslie was in Havana, Cuba, and in the forest one night heard a bird call coming through the darkness, which sounded like this. It intrigued him, and he decided to use that strain for a song. But by the time he got back to his hotel, it had escaped his memory, and for 15 years, he's been thinking of going back to Cuba to hear it again. On the golf course of Los Angeles not long ago, to his amazement, he heard the same bird call. Exactly like that one, presumes and he discovered that it was nothing more than a species of meadowlark's voice that he might have heard a thousand times since Cuba. But he wrote his song. He called it A Sentimental Journey, and it is about to be published over the land. Tonight's saying is its premiere, and Connie Haynes will sing the lyrics of Nat Leslie's 15-year lost melody based upon a bird call, A Sentimental Journey. And incidentally, you will note that in my scholarly manner, I have successfully avoided the temptation of any punning like saying that after 15 years, Mr. Leslie finally got the bird. Come 
memory of a glance She was tenderly This was new to me My first romance On a sentimental journey Every now and then Every sentimental journey brings me once again all those lazy, hazy days of long ago. Lost for 15 years becomes a new melody for our department of lost music. Harlow Wilcox here turns for a moment to the practical affairs of the evening with his words from the Johnson Wax Sheet. They say great minds run in the same channels. This must be true because in our mail lately, many car owners have been saying almost exactly the same thing. About like this. I'm glad I found car new just at this time when we're trying to save and still keep our present car looking fine. We don't know when we can buy a new one. Of course, we're all in that same boat, aren't we? Which explains why the demand for Johnson's Car New has been steadily increasing. It offers an inexpensive, labor-saving way to take care of the finish of your car. Car New does two jobs at the same time. It both cleans and polishes with one application. Even if you're driving very little, you still want to take care of that finish. And by the way, you can give your paint job added protection and save greatly on car washing by applying a coat of Johnson's Auto Wax or the regular Johnson's Wax. But in any case, first clean and polish the car with Johnson's Car New. Spelled C-A-R-N-U. Many letters have been received containing the suggestion that John Nesbitt use his dramatic gift as a storyteller to give the story of a book that has changed the history of the world. And with a reminder that each and every sentence of his tale of terror is based upon accurate documents, here is John Nesbitt. Six hundred and forty-four years ago, an Italian traveler was thrown into a jail cell in Genoa. And to pass the time, he wrote a book. His name was Marco Polo. And his book about China was so exciting that it started a world movement of exploration and led to the discovery of America. A book written in prison. 267 years ago, another man went to prison in London, England. He, too, wrote a book to keep from going mad in the silence of his cell. His name was John Bunyan. The book was Pilgrim's Progress. And after the Bible, it has sold more copies than any other book ever penned by man. A book written in prison. On a beautiful spring morning, just 18 years and five months ago, to a little river town in Bavaria, they brought another prisoner, tossed him into a cell, and forgot about him. He, too, decided to write a book. Marco Polo had told how he loved China. Bunyan had told how he loved Christianity. So this man decided to tell how he hated everything. During the soft spring evenings in April, May, and June, he would stride around his cell, dictating to another prisoner. A thin, gray-faced radical with dirty hair. His name, of course, 
Adolf Hitler, his book, of course, Mein Kampf. And while we were watching the Washington Baseball Club win the series, or nominating Calvin Coolidge for president and winning the 1924 Olympics for loaning Germany a couple of hundred million dollars to help it back on its feet, or watching Doug Fairbanks' latest picture called The Thief of Baghdad, the thin man in his jail cell was writing the book. The thin man wrote, First, Germany must conquer Europe, for no nation on earth holds a square yard of territory by any right derived from heaven. Strength alone constitutes the right to possess. Might is right, wrote the thin man. But he was just a broken-down penny-ante rabble-rouser in the jail. And it didn't concern us, did it? While we were working up the Dawes peace plan that year, the thin man wrote, Labor unions are to be abolished. Strikes are to be forbidden. No one is to be free to find work where he pleases. Wages will be frozen. Workmen forbidden to look for or even accept better jobs. Well, it didn't concern us, did it? The following year, while we were busy with the monkey trial of Tennessee, the thin man wrote, When we talk of new lands in Europe, we are bound to think first of Russia. The immense empire is ripe for collapse. Well, it didn't concern us, did it? The next year, 1926, the American stock market hit a new high, and a lot of us got rich enough to go abroad to play in Europe and drink unbootlegged liquor. A few Americans read the book then, and they saw that it had something in it for us after all. You can read that line today. It's terse, concise, complete. It's just one sentence that appeared in the first edition. Democracy in the West today is a monstrosity of filth. In the years that followed, the miracle happened. The one chance in ten million that would make his wild, badly written, clumsily thought-out book succeed actually turned up, and it became the Bible of the Nazi world, and its author became its god. Everything a Nazi official said officially became part of a book for censorship with an iron wall, what Hitler wanted us to hear, we heard, and nothing else. We listened to it, we read the book, but it didn't seem to make sense. It didn't make sense when Hitler said, quote, I shall maneuver France out of her Maginot line without losing a single soldier. How to do it is my secret. Then, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, Adolf Hitler made his book come true. He attacked France exactly as he said, pulled the wool over England's eyes exactly as he said, and on schedule, tore apart the old world. But he was talking about them. He was destroying them and not us, wasn't he? And then suddenly he was talking about destroying us. And from a dozen official documents can be drawn the plan for America. From the Ministry of Agriculture comes this plan, Berlin, May 1st, 1940. A new aristocracy of German masters, the Herrenvolk, will be created. This aristocracy will have slaves assigned to it. Please do not interpret the word slaves as a parable. Actually, we have in mind a modern form of medieval slavery, which we must introduce because we urgently need it in order to fulfill our great tasks. It concerns us, doesn't it? <laughs> Higher education will in the future be reserved only for the German population. Concerns us, doesn't it? Adolf Hitler, interview with Hermann Rauschnink, 1933, quote, 
Do you really believe the masses will ever be Christian again? Nonsense. I promise you I can destroy the church in a few years. Adolf Hitler interview, 1933. Americans behaved like clumsy boys. The American is no soldier. The inferiority and decadence of this allegedly new world is evident in its military inefficiency. Concerns us, doesn't it? Our superior products will be sold at very low prices throughout the world and will cause the United States to have not 7 million, but 30 million, 40 million unemployed. Then there is the matter of race. These are the words of Hitler's head of the Office of Racial Plan, Dr. Walter Gross. Our policy is to arrest the fertility of the Poles, Czechs, Serbs, Russians, and other Slavic peoples. Every increase through births among these parasitic peoples would be contrary to the general interests. We have therefore adopted radical measures to limit their births to a minimum. German soldiers will be free to abuse Slav women, but these women are not allowed to bear children. An exception is hereby made for girls in some districts of Poland, as in the Tatras mountain region, where they have been put into breeding camps at Helenyov near Lutz. And that is not about us, our women, or our families, because we have not been conquered. But there is a final document that again is the official released by the center Nazi view. We are mentioned in it. I quote Dr. Richard Daré, one of Hitler's ministers. At present, the United States is so demoralized and corrupted that, like France, it need not be taken into consideration as a military adversary. All the added chapters of a book begun in the cell of a jail, the one that we didn't think concerned us. Even the contemptuous, boastful sentence, the United States is so demoralized and corrupted that it need not be taken into consideration as a military adversary. It doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to you, does it? Unless you're the man who bought the bootleg tires. Unless you're the man with the scrap metal rusting in your garage because it was too much trouble to get it to the salvage place. Unless you are the man who doesn't buy bonds, because in a democracy, no one makes you buy bonds. This is the man Hitler sincerely believes you are. If he were right, the last chapter of Mein Kampf will be written in Berlin and not in Washington or London. But since you are not that man, this book of theirs, the most tragic book known to all the history of the human heart, the final chapter will be written by us. For Adolf Hitler, when he dreamed it all up that summer of 1924, proud to be writing his book in the cell of a jail, proud to be among those who changed history from behind barred windows, quite overlooked one of the men who also grew famous for such a prison task. He overlooked the fact that 110 years before he entered that jail in Bavaria to write Mein Kampf, an American in a cell likewise did some writing. In Fort McHenry was imprisoned Francis Scott Key, and the last four lines of his contribution to literature from a prison cell goes, And conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust, and the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. 
a copy of the talk you have just heard, send your name and address, together with a self-addressed stamped envelope, to S.C. Johnson and Son, Incorporated, Racine, Wisconsin. And now, here is another of Meredith Wilson's groups of melodies, which are a part of America's happier days when America sings. As usual, Meredith gives his own footnote. Our men in uniform at this very moment are seeing to it that the book John talked about isn't going to apply to us. Yet the harder the going gets, the more requests come to us for the little melodies of home. A fighting man, it seems, pines just as much for the little things of his land as he does for the great things. And that is why we close tonight, not with somber music, but with these gay symbols of home, which go out on our shortwave rebroadcast to the camps of our fighting men, the Melodies of America. As her eyes, and 
want a sweeter surprise When she nestles in my arms so tenderly There's a thrill that words cannot express In my heart a song of love is taunting me Melody haunting me
Don Nesbitt will have a word for you in a moment. But just now, we'd like to call your attention to the fact that in the whole vast and messy business of war, there are few jobs quite so important as the work of the merchant marines. America has embarked upon the most gargantuan program of production in world history. The goods of war must get to our allies and to our own fighting men in every conceivable corner of the globe. Even in peacetime, with the seas unmolested, it would be a major task to move so much so far. Right now, there is an urgent need for more men who will work in shipyards building new merchant vessels and men to sail those ships on the seas. The merchant marine does not want men engaged in farming or war production work. They do their share now. It does, however, want the young, the strong, the adventurous for seagoing jobs and the skilled, capable workers for the shipyards. Your local recruiting office will be glad to give you more details about this all-important job of smashing the axis. Gayer stories for the week to come and a new musical stunt from Meredith. But now our time is up, so until with Meredith Wilson, Connie Haynes, Bob Carroll, and Harlow Wilcox, we join you again a week from tonight. This is John Nesbitt bidding a very good evening to you all. Speaking for the makers of Johnson's Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, this is Harlow Wilcox inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This program has reached you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. This is Chicago, WMAQ at 9 p.m. B-U-L-O-V-A, Boulevard West Time. Welcome back. Well, the song uh, that they had for the uh, Lost Song Department piqued my interest when I heard it was Sentimental Journey, because that is the title of a very famous uh, song uh, that uh, came out uh, towards the end of World War II, and I wondered if that was what we were going to hear. Uh, it was not. Uh, this was uh, uh, just a song that... Uh, was lost, and now that we've heard it, is, I guess, lost again. The song Sentimental Journey that was much more famous that became uh, such a hit as uh, the war ended had uh, these lyrics, Gonna take a sentimental journey. Gonna set my heart at ease. Gonna make a sentimental journey to renew old memories. And that really did speak to the whole uh, Soldiers Coming Home and became such a huge hit uh, that so many people covered it. In fact, uh, you can actually find a recording on YouTube of Connie Haynes uh, singing that in 1945 on the Abbott and Costello uh, radio program. Of course, after that, you do get the reminder of a universal law. When Jean Nesbitt takes credit for not telling a horrible pun, that can only mean a horrible pun is on its way. That is a law of nature. That That's just the way the universe works. And then, of course, we get into the story segment. And wow, what a segment. Uh, just incredible, very stirring, and, and Nesbitt just uh, 
superb at holding your attention to tell the story. And then, of course, you follow it up with a lot of lighter melodies, and Meredith Wilson did a good job explaining why they were uh, going with that, as sort of difficult as it is to transition from that story of Mein Kampf. And I think it does highlight one of the really interesting things about people who lived and entertained in this era, is that there was a real seriousness uh, that they could get to, but they still had this room for lightness and for dealing with hope and finding determination to push through some very difficult circumstances. Uh, again, absolutely memorable stuff. Uh, I did not actually set out, as I think I've done over the last three weeks, to uh, play programs for you that could have easily been part of my World War II podcast. Uh, though I, I do feel like I should uh, mention that if you uh, want to hear more programs like this, uh, you'll want to check in uh, with The War over at thewar.greatdetectives.net. But next week we shift from The War, and I'll have a confession for you. No, 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 not my confession, or me confessing to anything. That will actually be the radio series we'll be playing, will be Confession. Join us back here next Wednesday for that. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.